The UN talks double talk as the ruling elite weaponize authoritarian democracy to overthrow authoritarianism. Also, you can sleep better tonight knowing that a notorious gang was caught smuggling one of their highest selling goods, their most sought after contraband in Auckland, New Zealand. Yes, they were caught smuggling KFC. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. It's episode 259, September 22nd, 2021, coming to you from the heart of the Middle East. And the, <laughs> the world just gets crazier and crazier. We're going to hit the, the KFC smuggling contraband story towards the, the end of the show. But the, the headlining today is that the UN is back after a, you know, a, a pause. You know, the nature was healing itself. And I think hopefully the world was able to heal a little bit in the time that the UN was not in physical session. But uh, the, the ruling elite gathered and the, the mouthpiece for the globalist agenda was front and center stage announcing all the bright and brilliant plans for the the new world order. Of course, here is uh, the president of the United States, ladies and gentlemen, President Joe Biden. And the commitment of my new administration to help lead the world toward a more peaceful, prosperous future for all people. For all people, including including the hundreds of thousands uh, that are fleeing from Afghanistan. Uh, th their future is definitely peaceful and uh, prosperous under the under the rule of the Taliban, under the, the the civil war that is beginning to break out there in Afghanistan after the the betraying of U.S. Uh, allies, not just in Afghanistan, but as it continues across the the region. Enough about Afghanistan for this episode. We're actually not focusing on Afghanistan in this episode. We'll be hitting more on China uh, and some some interesting clips from that. But before we get into China specifically, I want to talk about the UN. And it, even in this clip, uh, President Biden is talking of this you know this new order, this new world of peace and prosperity. In in his speech, he's talking about how America is back at the table and we're going to work with our allies. We're going to work with anyone to, to establish a, a new and safer world for everyone. And this is really the, an agenda within the UN. Of course, on, on the surface level, the, what, the words that are said, it's okay, yeah, that's what we want, but what does it mean beneath? And there was a great article uh, from the Discovery Institute this week uh, by a guest, Wesley J. Smith, wrote this piece. And the UN, it, start, it starts, I'm going to go through a couple of the points he makes in this piece. He starts with saying that the UN is released a, a long article that, written by the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez. And he, he writes in this article, the UN Secretary General, that their goal and their desire is that the UN be given power to rebuild the infrastructures for human existence. 
Now, infrastructure is the big buzzword. It's been floating around. Everyone needs infrastructure these days. And, and that is a clever way of saying we are going to overhaul not just physical, like actual infrastructure, like roads or, or, or buildings or bridges or the electrical grid. It's not just overhauling that, but it's saying we're going to also package in with this word infrastructure. We're going to package in education and the way that we educate. We're going to package in a, a new system of, of wealth distribution. We're going to package in a new way of seeing the world. We're going to repackage society itself. So when you see that word infrastructure, you can, you can read into uh, what is actually underneath that, or, or should I say, you should pause and ask what is actually, what is actually being meant by infrastructure as it's a, it's a really hot word, lots of letters. I don't even know. One, two, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 letter word, a 15 letter word that can mean a whole bunch of things. You sound really smart when you, when you rattle it off and you say, we're going to build back better and have infrastructure. It's like, yes, infrastructure. What is that? I don't know. But this is what the UN's common agenda in this 85-page report about the future that the UN wants to build for the world and what that actually means. If you've been a longtime listener of the show, you know that I don't have a very favorable view. If you couldn't tell by the first four minutes, five minutes of this episode, I don't have a very favorable view of the UN for a variety of reasons, and you'll hear some of the variety of reasons right here, right now. Gutierrez starts off saying that we are in a an inflection point in history. Well, yes, we are. In our biggest shared test since World War II, humanity faces a stark and urgent choice, break down or break through. Only the UN can save us. The United Nations pres presence the United Nations presence, excuse me, is global. Its membership is universal and its activities span the breadth of human need. Its fundamental values are not the pres preserved of any region. Indeed, they are found in every culture and religion around the world. Peace, justice, human dignity, equality, tolerance, and of course, solidarity. However, while the fundamental purposes and principles of the United Nations endure, the organization must evolve in response to the changing world to become more networked, inclusive, and effective. In this article, Smith writes that this translates to, this is a power grab to give the UN general and the secretary general in specific authority over the creation of national and international public policies. What this actually means is the UN Secretary General wants to be given power to write laws and to be given authority over nations and over international public spaces because they are the one unifying factor, the, the one hope for humanity. What, what else? Does he say in this? What does he mean? What, what is his ideas 
of the type of future that he wants to build. He goes on, taxation is one of the most powerful tools of government. Gutierrez, right? Taxation can also drive sustainability and just transition as governments shift subsidies from activities that damage the environment to those that sustain and enrich it. Translation, we will redistribute income to the developing world and use global warming as a pretext to create an international taxing power to bring the world's economy under our control. A global tax system is his dream. Gutierrez goes on, and he goes after free speech. He writes, Now is the time to end the infodemic, plaguing our world by defending a common, empirically-based consensus around facts, science, and knowledge. The war on science must end. All policy and budget decisions should be backed by science and expertise. I am calling for a global code of conduct that promotes integrity in public information, aka we want to be big brother. We want to control all the modes and forms of communication. We will be the ones who decides what is and what isn't fact. And the way that we'll do this, we'll find the scientists that agree with us and we'll have the censors decide what is or isn't fact and we'll control the people who control the information. And therefore, we can say, well, we're not doing it. It's the experts that are deciding this, but we've handpicked the experts. We've handpicked the sources. We have told you, these are the books that you can read. These are the sources that you can't read. He wants to establish an information monopoly. And it's not an exaggeration. He goes on, himself writing, while vigorously defending the right to freedom of expression everywhere, notice freedom of expression, not freedom of speech or, or freedom of communication. It's you can express yourself, but it's not freedom of information. It's freedom of expression. We must equally encourage societies to develop a common empirically-based consensus on the public goods of facts, science, and knowledge, a global code of conduct that, protects, that pr promotes integrity in public information that could be explored together with states, media outlets, and regulatory bodies facilitated, facilitated by the United Nations. With recent concerns about trust and mistrust linked to technology and the digital space, it is also time to understand, better regulate, and manage our digital commons as, global, as a global public good. This is where, we've been talking about this for a long time, this is where they want to drive this, a control of all the public platforms, all the social media platforms, a control of what you can and cannot see, censorship. Because if you can control the information, if you can control the facts, you can control the people. He goes on, social justice, racism, intolerance, and discrimination continue to exist in all societies, pause, and they always will. Do you know why? Because wrapped up in the heart of man is envy, is jealousy, is hatred. And, and that is not going to go away by the UN creating some laws or our, our new regulatory body. Yes, there are things that we can do 
to alleviate those things. But the answer and the problem lies within the heart of man, not a, a global regulatory body. He goes on, as seen during the pandemic with the scapegoating of groups blamed for the virus, and as a start, the adoption of comprehensive laws against discrimination, including based on race or ethnicity, age, gender, religion, disability, sexual orientation, or gender identity, is long overdue. AKA, if you say a man is a man and a woman is a woman and a man cannot give birth, well, that's hate speech and that is punishable by law globally. That is the, the world, the utopia, dystopia that he hopes to create. The Smith who wrote this writes, this is the translation of the statement, the new international order will promote critical race theory, abortion rights, and the values of the transgendered movement while suppressing dissonance from the reigning global moral order. That is, that is the, the goals and the agendas of the UN, from the senior leadership of the UN. That is what they want to push across the globe. Global taxation. Critical race theory. Abortion rights. Transgendered movement. It's, it is a globalist movement that is, is not based via election. It is not a ruling body that is based on democracy, but it is, uh, it is a power grab by the ruling elite to control societies and ultimately control you, to control the laws that govern your life, to establish a, a, a censorship, global censorship, so they can decide what is and is in fact. And now, if you say something that they have deemed is not true or not fact, well, that's adios to you, amigo. Here is, is Biden. Here is Biden. A, a little more from his, his speech, which will transition us into uh, this next segment. As the United States turns our focus to the priorities and the regions of the world, like the Indo-Pacific, that are most consequential today and tomorrow, we'll do so with our allies and partners through cooperation at multilateral institutions like the United Nations to amplify our collective strength and speed our progress toward dealing with these global challenges. No, whenever he says Indo-Pacific, really what he means is China. So, and we've seen America in recent days begin to withdraw even missile batteries from our allies in Saudi Arabia. We withdrew out of Afghanistan, leaving high and dry our allies, uh, not just our allies in Afghanistan, but leaving high and dry allies of the UK and NATO, who they are quite, the UK is definitely not happy with the way that the withdrawal from Afghanistan happened. But here he's saying, we're, we're refocusing. We're refocusing on more strategic problems, bigger looming problems in the quote-unquote Indo-Pacific, which really means we're focusing on combating China, which is the whole uh, Australian, UK, US, the AUKUS deal, where the US 
cut France out of the the submarine deal, and they decided to give, I'm sure for a hefty cost, Australia nuclear-powered submarines to what? To act as a bulwark against China. Well, this is where the double talk, as I said in the intro, there, there's so much double talk going on, just as we went through the UN saying what they want to do. And then when you break down what that actually means in their policy and their world that they want to build, it's quite the opposite. They say that we want, they want to build freedom by ending the infodemic, by, but by doing that, they're, they're, they want to create a, a sensorial uh, big brother world where they decide what is truth, where they decide what is fact not just for one country where they've been democratically voted in, but for the globe. Now, there is going to be a, a number, a large number of nations that are currently resisting and will continue to resist this globalist push. But the double talk continues to play even in, in Biden's speech as we're going through a couple, a couple clips from that, where he says, okay, we are building up and focusing on the Indo-Pacific. But at the same time, we actually kind of like China. Here's another clip. But we're not seeking, say it again, we are not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid blocks. The United States Wait, we're not seeking a new Cold War, but we're making sure to build up our, our, our military allies in the Indo-Pacific to defend against China, a.k.a. We are in a new Cold War. But he continues. The United States is ready to work with any nation that steps up and pursues peaceful resolution to shared challenges, even if we have intense disagreements in other areas. Let me break that down for you. When he says shared challenges, he means global warming. Lots of his speech was dedicated to global warming again, again and again and again, saying how we're all facing a climate weather and climate is challenging the entire world. We're all, we need to battle climate. It's not even climate change now. It's just, we need to battle climate. Uh, and, and it's a global issue that goes across borders. So if we can find people who, who, uh, as he says here, that steps up and pursues peaceful resolution to shared challenges, shared challenges who pursue peaceful resolutions to shared challenges, even if even if we have intense disagreements yes. in other areas. Well, what are those tense disagreements and who is he talking about? Again, he's making reference to China. Even Nancy Pelosi just last week said, yes, China does a whole bunch of horrible things, but we're going to partner with them because global warming is a bigger issue. And so here's this really easy scapegoat uh, loophole that they're, they're weaving right now, which is, well, there's bigger problems that we need to focus on. Don't worry about the millions of Uyghurs that are, are in concentration camps and the genocide that is happening against them. There are bigger issues like global warming. So we can cozy on up to China. And again, this is the, the strange double talk that I hear going on. I even see it with in his talk when it is related to Afghanistan, where pulling out of Afghanistan really gives a lot of help to China. It is a great move, I think, for China and Russia, while at the same time, people are making the arguments that uh, President Biden, one of them, making arguments that by America pulling out, 
it then presents China with its own dangers of terrorism locally. This is also seen in this statement in these clips where he's saying we are building up the Indo-Pacific, which is what this whole deal, we've even betrayed France to get these submarines in this new trilateral agreement. It's the same thing that they've been doing with the Quad, with Japan, uh, uh, Australia, in India, and the United States to what be a bulwark against China's growing power and their, their trade dominance in the world. So it's, it's this really mixed messaging that it kind of gets a little confusing of knowing, well, which, which, one is, which one is it really? Is it that they are our friend and our ally and we're going to build together and everything's groovy? Or is, we, is it we are in a Cold War? Well, going back to the, the Uyghur situation, the, the intense disagreements, I, I want to play this clip from Gordon Chang, who he was on a, an interview called The Debate which is a production of Newsweek. And here's him weighing in on, on China and what's happening there. And it's important to understand when President Biden says intense disagreements, one, what he's referring to, and I want you to ask yourself, is this an intense disagreement? Is this something that is big enough that we shouldn't say, well, yeah, we're, we're just going to go along and we're going to play peace even though these things are going on. Now, Gordon Chang is a columnist, an author, a lawyer, and he's widely known for his book, The Coming Collapse of China. Here's Gordon. On the Uyghurs, genocide is defined in Article 2 of the Genocide Convention of 1948. And most people who have looked at this believe that China has indeed committed genocide pursuant to that provision. We know that China has detained at least 1.1 million, maybe 3.3 million wow. in facilities that meet the definition of concentration camps. We know that people are dying in those camps because China is building crematoria next to them. We know that people are being tortured in those camps. We know that there is institutionalized rape. We know that there is forced organ harvesting. That's the tribunal that was conducted by Sir Jeffrey Nice. We also know that there is institutionalized slavery, that China has been selling Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other Turkic minorities to both foreign and domestic companies. Um, and basically, this is more than just forced labor. This is slavery. This is genocide and crimes against humanity. This is the tense disagreement that the West, not just the West, many nations have with China. This is the tense disagreement. Is the, the list of organ harvesting to, to selling uh, Uyghurs and Kazakhs into slavery, the, to, to concentration camps, to genocide. Is that, is that just something that can be glossed over and be like, yeah, let's, let's move on. It's okay. This is just a, a margin issues. Well, now when we talk about China, I want to be I don't know if careful is the right word, but I want to be clear that there, there really is, there truly is a difference between the, the CCP or the CPC, the, the communist, China Communist Party, and the people of China, the, the everyday person who wants a, oftentimes a very different world, a very different scenario, future, society 
than what the communist party wants to to push and a lot of people who are pro communism or pro china will attempt to make these arguments that communism and that china was able to pull an enormous amount of people out of poverty more than anyone else and saying we need to give credit where credit's due china has done so much for their people we can't just say that they're all bad look at all the good they have done and here is chang again uh counter arguing making a counterpoint to this argument so in terms of poverty yes i agree with you um but the question is how is that done and it was done largely because the chinese people forced the communist party to not stand in their way anymore this occurred um in 1978 when um people started to see that Deng Xiaoping a quote unquote reformer was taking over but Deng was actually continuing a lot of the old uh, communist party tactics of course of control over the economy um and the chinese people said no we're just not doing it they did it on their own they ignored communist party mandates and the communist party actually had to follow them so i don't think it was the chinese communist party that has alleviated this mm-hmm. poverty it's the chinese people themselves demanding that the party get out of the way and what we've seen recently um with xi jinping's initiatives um 1.3 trillion dollars of value of chinese companies have been uh, knocked off in the space of what 7 or 8 weeks this is an anti-business anti-poverty alleviation um regime and that's important to understand that just in the last week there's been a huge stock market crash in China that is being called to be equivalent of what America and the West experienced and the world experienced in 2008 and a lot of people are worried as the stock market is teetering on a on a thin line uh some people are saying that this is just a little uh, a tiny little shake a little foretaste of of what is actually to come in the coming months uh we'll, we'll see what happens everyone has been predicting the big one the big crash uh for years and years now uh so we'll see how soon or far that comes but i wanted to focus here on uh the fact that what gordon was saying is that it was the people the people of the chinese people said communist government get out of our way we want a capitalistic system we want capitalism we want to have freedom to run our businesses and it reminded me of a story when i heard this clip it reminded me of a story the other probably the other month now i was getting getting some work done on on my car so i went down to the the local garage just right around the corner from my house and stormed by Uh, some an Iranian guy really nice really kind gentleman he helped pick up my car to drive it to the to the shop and on the way we were talking and he was saying and I was agreeing how you know we're brothers in many ways that he said you know your government and my government they might fight they might hate each other but look here we are we're friends we're talking we're laughing we're having a great time together and that is an important thing to remember and realize that many times there are government regimes that have one agenda like in Iran where 10% of the the population the ruling elite is 
is imposing their will on the other 90%. And by and large, that 90% of Iranians who, who have I've sat with many of them, they don't want that. They don't want that reality. They don't want that society. The same thing is what we're seeing right now happening in Afghanistan. Yes, there are uh, many different tribes across Afghanistan who are very happy that the Taliban are in power. It would be a miss to say that all the people of Afghanistan are upset, but probably a good 80% of the people and all of the minorities are very worried about their future under the Taliban's rule. The same thing goes with China. There, the, the, there's a, differenti a differentiation that needs to take place between the Chinese people and the Chinese government when, when we're looking and discussing these things um, as they're, they're two different things in my mind. Now, uh, he goes on with this one last clip of this looming question that many people have is, will China become the next superpower? Are they already the next superpower? And we haven't quite realized it yet. Well, this is Gordon's take on it. India could very well be the world's superpower by the middle of the century. Maybe yes, maybe no. But the point is, we know that China won't be. And we know for one very simple reason. And that is that China today, which has a population of 1.41 billion people, according to the seventh national census that was conducted last November and December, at the end of this century, will be no more than a billion people, even according to China's own estimates, which overstate China's demographic potential. Um, China probably will have a population of maybe 500 million if it's lucky. In other words, they're going to suffer the biggest demographic decline in history in the absence of war or disease. That is just mind-boggling. We've, we've touched on this before, the, the population collapse that is coming to China that is already here in China, do you, and that's brought on by itself to the, to the one-child policy, which then they lifted it. And we've discussed this a number of episodes back. They lifted it to two-child, and now it's at a three-child poverty or uh, uh, limit. But the, the policy change hasn't resulted in a cultural change, and the birth rate is still going down. Their population is aging. They are approaching a population collapse and population collapse also leads to economic collapse. And then that creates a, that deflationary uh, cycle or that depressionary deflationary cycle really in the population. It creates this, this cycle that's very, very hard to pull out of. So many experts are saying that it is not likely that they will become a superpower because of the fact that they are facing a population decline. Well, there is still madness going on across the globe with vaccines, vaccine mandates, uh, with riots and protests, especially across uh, in Australia and New Zealand and, the, and Europe. But here is uh, President Biden again at the UN summit talking about how we need to harness and utilize new technology to be able to combat what is coming in the future. Here is a, a continuation of this, these series of clips by uh, President Joe Biden. Will we work together to save lives, defeat COVID-19 everywhere, and take the necessary steps to prepare ourselves for the next pandemic, for there will be another one? There will be another or one, Or will we fail to harness the tools at our disposal 
as the more virulent and dangerous variants take hold. Those variants, those, those variants, I think we're on Moo now. I don't know how many variants there are out there. But it's, this is the cycle that we're in. Of, of they're saying there's, you know, there's another pandemic coming. There's another pandemic coming. But recently, I've been seeing articles saying that likely what's going to happen is that we are not going to, and it's probably more than likely, it is a fact, we are not going to rid ourselves of COVID. COVID zero is not a reality that we are going to reach. And the pandemic is really going to turn into what's called an endemic. Now, an endemic is a disease that ends up being with us ongoing. So the influenza would be an endemic. The, the common cold would be an endemic. And those are things that are typically seasonal that comes in waves. And there's no vaccine. There's no cure for it. That every season, there is a, a new variant that kind of flows through. Well, here's this shocking clip by Professor Sir Andrew Pollard, who is the director of, of Oxford uh, Zeneca, who is a, the director of the vaccine, talking just about how the, the vaccines are not going to cause herd immunity. Now, this is what people have been saying, that it's all about herd immunity. And that's why they're trying to get these numbers up. But here's Sir Andrew Pollard. I think we are in a situation here with this current variant uh, where herd immunity is not a possibility because it still infects uh, vaccinated individuals. Um, and I suspect that what uh, the virus will throw up next is a, is a variant which is perhaps even better at transmitting in vaccinated populations. And so that's an even more of a reason not to be making a vaccine program around herd immunity. So I, I don't think there's anything the UK can do to stop the emergence of new variants. They're going to happen. And uh, if anything, we need to focus now not on uh, what might stop new variants, because I, I don't think we have uh, any um, facility to control that. We need to focus on um, thinking about how do we prevent people dying or going to hospital. So I, I, there's a couple things that I hear him saying. One, He's admitting that vaccinated people are getting COVID and can spread it and can get it. So this isn't, this isn't about creating a total immunity, but it's hopefully going to, and this is what he's saying, that hopefully this will result in people not going to hospital as much due to these shots. But he is also saying we need to focus on not just, okay, we need to create herd immunity because he's saying, well, that's not going to happen. We're going to have another variant and another variant and another variant, and we're not going to ever create that herd immunity. If I'm understanding what he's saying right, it's not going to happen. So instead of focusing on that, we need to focus on how to treat the disease rather than just creating a, 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 vac a vaccine to the disease. And maybe he is talking about a vaccine, but what I'm hearing, and I would think would be rational is, okay, how can we treat, get, get a treatment which there are treatments, preventative treatments, vitamin D, ivermectin, vitamin C. These are all things that have proven themselves. Probably there's a whole list of other things on those. You know, there's so many COVID podcasts out there that could tell you everything that is helping would help with preventative. But it's just fascinating 
that he is making this point that this is here to stay. And we're not going to get this, this magical herd immunity. We're not going to get to COVID zero. We have to learn to live with it. And we have to learn how to keep people healthy through it and move on with life. This, this clip goes on. I'll, I'll play the, the last 50 seconds of this clip. And I think this is uh, an enormously important thing to be um, thinking about today because uh, this, during the course of this week, there'll be about 65,000 deaths um, in the world. We, we have now um, over 4 billion doses deployed of the vaccines globally. And that is now enough doses to have prevented almost all of those deaths. And yet they, they are continuing. Did you catch that? But 66,000 deaths this week globally. Then he says, we've distributed 4 billion doses globally, which should be enough for herd immunity. And yet the deaths are still continuing, which means that this herd immunity, it is not going to be a reality for this disease. We have to come up with other solutions. And yet here is President Joe Biden. Uh, another short clip from him at the UN. Bombs and bullets cannot defend against COVID-19 or its future variants. To fight this pandemic, we need a collective act of science and political will. We need to act now to get shots in arms as fast as possible. Well, Australia is taking that to heart. They are they're acting now. Uh, to get shots in arms as fast as possible. Uh, over the, the last number of days, riots have begun to break out across Australia. Here's, here's a, just a short clip. You can hear what's going on in the background. They're throwing stuff now. And, uh, okay, they're shooting. They're now shooting. They're now shooting people. You can hear the, oh my God. They're now shooting people. I don't know if this is the shots in arms that President Joe Biden was referring to. Was it this sort of shots in arms? Uh, in this other clip, this clip that we just played by President Biden, he also says we need to, you know, bombs and, and guns won't solve this issue. We need to use science and we need to use political will. And this right here, it, it seems to be effective. They're saying, Here's our science. This is the, the, what we have said is the, the bottom line. We're going to mandate. We're going to create this mandate. Not where, hey, this works. Take it if you want. If it works and you believe that it works, you're going to take it. Instead, it's saying we're going to use our political will and the scenes, the scenes from what, what's happening right now in Australia. It's just shocking. It, it looks like just full-on war scenes, uh, just unbelievable the, the clashes that we are seeing right now over these lockdowns. Uh, and it's, it's just overtly authoritarian. And what President Biden is doing even in America and, and forcing on private businesses saying you must, if you have over 100 employees, you must have this mandated, that is classic textbook authoritarian move. But here is Biden again, back to the double talk that we're talking about at the UN. 
Peace will belong to those who give their people the ability to breathe free, not those who seek to suffocate their people with an iron hand. Authoritarianism, the authoritarianism of the world, may seek to proclaim the end of the age of democracy, but they're wrong. The truth is, the democratic world is everywhere. The democratic world is everywhere, like in Australia, like in America, like in the UK, like in New Zealand, which are all behaving quite authoritarian. Now, there's many states in America that's not behaving authoritarian when it comes to this issue. But when you look at what's happening in Australia and New Zealand, two democratic nations, it is the, the tyranny of the majority. And I don't even know if it's a majority. It's the tyranny of the ruling class that is imposing this iron fist in democracy. Democracies are not uh, immune to authoritarianism. Here is another little, little snippet, great little snippet from the, the, the protests down in New Zealand. Communism is not welcome in our democracy. We will not stand for it. We will not comply. Communism is not welcome in our democracy. Well, Oh, man. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. In a post-truth society where we've exchanged truth for lies and reason for postmodern irrationality, the absurd makes sense. Uh, <laughs> in New Zealand, oh, man, New Zealand has just had some of the, the roughest lockdowns of anywhere. Just absolutely insane. But this week, a, an article came out exposing this new wave of dangerous criminals, probably organized crime, uh, highly, highly dangerous, smuggling uh, illicit goods into Auckland, New Zealand as they're under a stage four lockdown. And over the week, uh, some, some probably evil, horrible drug lords got stopped with a trunk full of KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Two men have been arrested. It's from The Guardian. Two men have been arrested after the police said they found them in a car bootful of Kentucky Fried Chicken and over $100,000 in cash. They're probably get, trying to get their, their cash to because um, they're, they're buying KFC and then delivering it around town. That's what I would be doing. The men were arrested after allegedly trying to flee from the police near the Auckland border. Their car was searched and they found large quantities of KFC. In such an environment, fast food can take on the aura of high-valued illicit substance. Here's, here's another crazy line. Last week, a man was charged by the police after posting a social media video of crossing the Auckland border in search of McDonald's. Because right now, in Auckland, under the, the stage four lockdown, all fast food places are closed. So people are looking for fast food. They're going to you know, smuggle themselves out of Auckland to try to find fast food elsewhere and come back. But that is breaking the health mandates. Oh, man. This breach of the COVID-19 Public Health Response Act can result in the imprisonment of up to six months or $4,000 fine. And I, I mean, clearly, if you have three buckets of chicken, um, gallons of I mean, multiple containers, I don't know, of coleslaw, 
you're probably part of some sort of, of KFC trafficking organization. And uh, for sure, you should be locked up and put away for a long time. Well, this show is brought to you by listeners and by listeners like you, just like you. So I want to start by saying thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thousands of people listen to this show every month. And it's not fueled by massive ads. We don't run ads on the show, but it's fueled by people like you giving value back to the show in the value that you received. And by doing so, you help this show stay on the air and you help improve the quality and the time being able to give given to this show. I speak English. Very good. Well, don't go away. We'll be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. Today's quote is actually a clip that I found from the Atlas Society, which is a libertarian society, uh, with uh, by Richard Salzman. And he is talking about not just having caution in our lives, but being precautionary and a precautionary movement. There's something called the precautionary principle, which maybe almost no one has heard of, but I believe me, it's behind the scenes and it's been in academia and growing. And if I said to you, we should live our lives with caution, you know, and not be reckless risk takers, most people would say, well, of course not. Uh, Some people take more risks than others. And so it's just, you know, rational in many contexts to to have caution. But the idea of precaution, which is what the precautionary principle is, is the idea that we we should be super sensitive to things that might cause us to be cautious. So it's like one step removed and it's a whole movement. Mm. Then I don't even know what you would call it. There's uh, journals of risk assessment. There's journals of risk analysis. They apply these to climate change models, they apply these to epidemiology, they apply these to workplace incidents. But what has happened is they have supercharged the whole idea of taking risks. And they've set up a standard which is so platonic and actually so fear-inducing that it's causing people to not do things within the norms of like low risk. Uh, and that's what's happening, I think, in COVID. It, it isn't just that there are these problems with the World Health Organization, the CDC, the FDA, the authoritarianism of Biden. There is also this kind of philosophic fuel being given to it by uh, this push again to say that you shouldn't just be risk averse. You should be massively risk averse, you know, almost to the extent where you live in a bubble. And this is infected even by the way parenting. <clears throat> For those of you who know what helicopter parents are, parents who try to immunize their children from any kind of failure or risk uh, at all. I love this clip about being precautionary and how when we're overly cautious, it actually destroys, like destroys our creative ability. It destroys if you're an overly cautious parent that anytime a toy drops, you're sanitizing it 20 times and you're making sure your kid is living in a bubble. Just, you know, YOLO, you only live once. You ought to look out. You better be safe. Precautionary. And 
it's why people, maybe you don't know this, but people make fun of other people when they say, stay safe, you know, stay safe. It's like, well, how safe, how safe are we really going to stay? Should I, should I just stay in my house? Should I just live locked up, live in fear and not risk? And there's, as he said at the beginning, there's a difference between being cautious and not just being foolish and doing foolish things that are going to cause harm and being precautious, which is a step before that. And, and then right now we're being precautious about being precautious. We're, we're having so many levels because in society, we have boiled life down to our life. That after our, our physical body, there's nothing left. After that, there's nothing left. All that we have to hang on to is our health and our wellness. And if that is the world that we live in, if that is our worldview, our paradigm, that all we have to hang on to is our health and our wellness, then we are going to live these lives of trying to self-preserve, that self-preservation. That self-preservation will cause us to shrink back in our cages, into ourselves, and we will not even live even though we're alive. We won't actually fulfill our purpose of the reason that we are here on the earth because we will be so filled and flooded with fear as we work to preserve ourselves rather than to give of ourselves freely, rather than to risk our lives freely, to do something that we could fail and, 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 and fail hard at, taking true risks with our lives where we look foolish. We end up in dire situations. Those are the people who succeed in the world. Those are the people that we look up to and admire. Those people who were not precautious, but they weighed the risks and they took action. So do that for your life. Don't be safe this week. Go out and take risks. Go out and take risks within your community, within your relationships, of, of pushing the boundaries of, of loving one another, pushing the boundaries of serving other people, pushing the boundaries of how you dream about what you want to do with your life or how you dream about the vision that you want to lead your family into. Take risks this week. And one way that you can take a risk is by sharing this episode with those friends, those relationships, those colleagues, you can do so by texting this, sending them this podcast, or even just talking about some of the ideas that we talked about here on today's show together. And that will be a risk for you because then you'll be forced to engage with them along these subjects. And maybe they're going to disagree with you and maybe you'll be put in an awkward situation. But that is how we grow and that is how we build a strong society and culture and community around us. It is brick by brick. And you and I can lead in those societies. We can lead by setting culture. We can lead by connecting people together. And it's in the connecting people together, in the joining people together, there is purpose. Because purpose is always found in connection to someone else. And that, my friends, can help us and help us own the future. <laughs>